Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. As the costs of meeting customer expectations and competitive pressures continue to rise, more banks are considering mergers and acquisitions to gain scale and stay relevant. But there are deep structural regulatory constraints that can often be an impediment. Everything from the way geographic boundaries are defined, to the way competition is measured, to the way that products and services are measured and defined, have origins that don't seem well-suited for today's financial services landscape. As we lead up to Bank Directors Acquire or Be Acquired Conference, Kia Haslett, Managing Editor for Bank Director, is here with us. So if you've listened to Kia on the show before, you know she's a self-professed regulatory nerd. She's also a soccer referee, so I want to talk about the parallels if we have time at the end here of being a regulatory body on the field, and we haven't talked since the World Cup. Uh, But he is going to walk through some of the increasingly outdated modes of analysis and some of the ways that regulators are planning updates. And we're going to debate whether it's all enough to achieve the stated goals of maintaining competitive markets for the good of the public. So, Kia, welcome back to the show. And you noted, um, you, you you quoted actually, um, noted uh, Bank M&A attorney Peter Wein- Weinstock in your article that says, part of the problem is that regulators tend to have a 1950s view of the banking system. What, what does he mean by that? Well, thank you, um, GP and Jason, for having me back. I am really excited to talk about this with you because I think this, um, you know, the reason was why ba- banks do M&A and then the um, framework by which M&A deals are assessed by regulators. There's some real tension there that um, I think a lot of regulators want to change, but we don't know what direction they're going to go. So I was reporting on this for my Q1 23 issue um, for Bank Director Magazine, um, the competitive concerns for a deal. And I learned in this that the um, that regulators have to assess the, for the competitive impacts of a deal from a 1960 Supreme Court decision. Um, and they need to figure out what happens to a market option services for customers and businesses after a deal is closed, approved and closed. Um, and then the framework, the HHI index actually comes from um, two night. 1950s economists. The framework was invented in the 1950s. Can can you pause there and talk about what is HHI? What what does that mean? It's an index um, that, like, basically, it the way I understand it, and this might be wrong because I, I kind of only understood on the outside, but it calculates a geographic market, and then it looks at the businesses and banks that are in each market and the um, tries to quantify their impact on the market. And so when and so when two banks want to combine together, regulators look at how those banks will, the combination of those two banks and their individual HHI scores will impact a market. So um, that's what banks talk about when they talk about passing the HHI test. And it's um, it's something that you can quantify. I just don't have the like 
it's it's available on like S&P or the Federal Reserve can do this. Um, any bank can calculate their HHI score. And so if you look at, if you're a bank A and you want to buy bank B and you're in town C, you can calculate what the HHI score will be in that market. And so this is a big thing that comes up ahead of deals being announced. Banks probably like it comes into who you would even try to combine with because of the potential HHI score. Yeah, the Herfindahl Hirschman Index HHI. I wasn't going to pronounce it. I'm sorry. I wasn't going to pronounce it <laughs> either. I was avoiding that. I was hoping Kia was going to pick Thanks, it up. Thanks, JP, for taking that one. Well, every, yeah, everybody just calls it HHI, but uh, you, you know, Jason, uh, it, it seems to me to be a pretty blunt, uh, not to mention outdated instrument. Well, it worked when the nature of competition was branch-based and your ability to lend, right? Let's break down what is the fundamental business model that has not changed since the days of Medici. Take in deposits on one end, lend them out at a higher rate, you know, on the other end. And predominantly the way community banks have been able to compete effectively is they're good at gathering deposits from both um, consumers and small businesses that have relatively stable and larger amounts of deposits. The bigger you get, suddenly you get very sophisticated because those deposits represent working capital. And so you begin to farm it out and do a lot more sophisticated things when you get up to the commercial side of the house, right? And so where do the, are they able to compete on the lending side is really around doing small business lending, right? It is, you know, can be just as expensive to lend to a consumer as it is to a business. So you're a lot more comfortable saying, hey, it's worth putting the time and energy in to make that bigger loan, right? So if you think about it, why is it a blunt instrument that worked historically? Is your branch footprint equated to what your deposits were going to look like? And it was bound by geography. And you can extrapolate because, you know, your ability to gather deposits are you know very quickly going to determine downstream how much lending can I do? Yeah, it, I well, I was surprised to learn that. Um, so for regulators, they look at the summary of deposits, which is branch based. Um, that's an annual survey, and they actually just use deposits as a proxy for loans. Um, and there's some real tension there because I think you know you guys could certainly talk about how deposits are gathered today. Um, especially, you know, for businesses and then where loans are made. Yeah. Well, I, in my first in time I hit the HHI was at, when I was at First Marblehead, the large private student loan company in the um, early 2000s. And one of my jobs was to launch a high yield money market. We were actually um, doing about a billion dollars of loans on the house loan, right? So it was like Chase, B of A, and then our Strive loan, right? So it's CFO realized like, wait a second, if, you know, we actually were a bank instead of using a warehouse line, that would, you know, be, you know, save us several hundred basis points. And so it's like, hey, Jason, we need to go be an online bank, right? And at the time, you know, think 2008, we're one year into the iPhone at this point. There really was Tia Craft, right now just known as Tia, Wingspan. And, you know, what we set out to build is a high yield money market. And as you began to look at the HHI index, and they were asking to define the competition, really there are two parts of this. One is, you know, they were looking at the geographic footprint, except we had purchased a small thrift in North Providence, Rhode Island for the <laughs> charter for this thing, right? 
Except our deposits were coming from everywhere. Why? Because, you know, when you're paying yeah. six or getting 16 to 18% on your loans, you can pay a lot more interest than anyone else in the market. And the regulators, you know, just their eyes went wide. They had no concept for, well, you only Did have two those? branches. How Did do you have so many deposits? deposits have to be um, attributed to your uh, location in Rhode Island. So you yeah. just had this like giant branch in Rhode Island. Yeah, that's what it looked like. SOD, yeah. By the way, I'm 90% sure that that branch uh, had black mold in the basement. Just to tell you the caliber of the institution we relieved the OTS of. <laughs> well, let's yeah, so talk- that's a real problem for banks, right? Like that that we this is just the system we have, and it's the data that gets put into the analysis, and that increasingly that analysis is missing some really really important competition. Well, yeah. In the second thing they assess, though, so you know, first is around deposit concentration because it's easy to quantitate, and that means, hey, if I have a number, I like to be able to compare numbers because it feels fair. Um, although we have a few exceptions, you know, more recently where the Federal Reserve Bank has, you know, done analysis and realized you know, the numbers, in fact, were lying. Um, but the other is the overlap of products and services, and this is where things get really tricky. Because when you look at overlap of products and services, is a debit card or savings product issued by a fintech that has a issuing bank sitting behind it, is that the same product as you know a debit card that I can walk into a branch and get, right? Well, and then the measure of if all of that's attributed to your single branch location in Rhode Island, how does that impact other you know, financial institutions in that defined market area. Yeah, it, like what's being missed if uh, some some bank wants to, in Rhode Island, wants to buy another bank and then that competition is is totally misweighted. Right. So how are those geographies even defined? Who's responsible for that? What does a geography look like? Is there consistency across that? I think I know the answer to that one. Well, I learned from a speech that Michelle, Governor Michelle Bowman, uh, Fed Governor Michelle Bowman gave in September 2022 that the Fed is responsible for creating its banking, these banking markets. And um, there's about 1,500 of them. They have to be constantly updated. And it's not always clear um, where they define the boundaries of a market. Um, if And so in my story, Peter Weinstock and Pat Hickman, a, a retired banker, told me about Plainview, Texas, which is halfway down um, a 100-mile stretch of interstate. And Having that- driven through it, I'm just <laughs> going to define is it is halfway to the middle of nowhere, yeah. if not three quarters of the way to the middle of nowhere. And they were talking about how there are people that do live in Plainview. Um, but when people want to do commercial activity in Plainview, they tend to drive north or south to a, to two different other cities. And that Plainview as a market, as some, as people live in that market, maybe do not understand it to be a distinct economic area from you know Lubbock and Amarillo. And that um, they went through a lot of arguments with different regulatory bodies, including the DOJ and the Federal Reserve, to try to help the, help these agencies understand how um, commerce is done in this market because um, 
Pat's bank, Happy State Bank, wanted to purchase another bank that was in market that would have led to a concentration. And so they were, you know, they tried to say that this is a very rural, and, you know, this happens in rural markets, that they concentrate a lot faster, they have fewer institutions. And also that rural markets, like, you know, these banks do probably need scale uh, to grow faster than maybe um, a, a bank in a more urban market. Well, and let's talk about scale, because, you know, this is one of the things they they talk about it's like, oh, wait a second, if we reduce the number of banks, we're going to have less competition because, you know, we needed those two branches in town. So you had a choice of whether you're going right down Main Street or left down Main Street for your banking, all your banking needs. But the real problem is, and I think you did a great job in your article in highlighting this, when you're subscale, your ability to actually provide the products and services that your customers need for, you know, to meet the changing expectations goes down. And I love one of your example there that, you know, they needed to upgrade their mobile app that was going to cost a million dollars. And, you know, they didn't have a million dollars sitting in the bank given, you know, their size. Mm -hmm. And I would say mobile app is just the tip of the iceberg that you know there's a whole host of other things that mobile app is actually you know just a uh defensive mechanism yeah well it, you add to that this situation where banks are beginning to look outside of gathering deposits and making loans right the driving more fee income and so then these blunt instruments become even more blunt because they really aren't representative of that when we say deposits are proxy. It mm-hmm. it ends up being probably not a horrible proxy for loans because um, you know, that that ends up being the limiter on the loan volume. But what about the other kinds of services that are that are being provided? Yeah, it's it's not clear to me that um like it feels like deposits and loans are what's prioritized in the analysis in to the DOJ you can argue that um if a um in market deal is approved it would actually expand products and services and i find that to be very compelling we that are, that comes up a lot in um deal rationale and deal calls a, a bank will say you know we're buying this bank in town but we can expand the lending limit or we can give them um more uh like insurance services or treasury management services that the smaller bank didn't have and i and that makes sense to me um that the smaller bank might decide to be acquired by an in-market competitor that they're really familiar with and then um, see that as an expansion. Uh, The other thing too, and, um, you know, with loans, um, in my story, Peter Weinstock and Pat Hickman argue that in Plainview, Texas, that um, the municipal deposits were um, kept at an out-of-state competitor. They weren't at a local bank. And they also argue that there were up to 30 or 40 non-bank lenders in the market. And I found that to be compelling because I think, you know, we think about like, um, you know, consumer lenders, like non-bank lenders. But I was thinking about, you know, they were talking about Farm Credit Bureau. And I'm sure there are a lot of like other t- types of agencies that will make loans that these that these banks are encountering when they go for to co- compete for the credit and realize like you know they're losing out on this business. Do you guys want to talk about that at all the product services and loans from non-banks? Product services and loans, but I want to hit part of the M&A piece of this, right? And you know, Kia normally I love having you on when we're going to be having hot sauce and especially when it's you Alex Johnson and I doing a hot wings and hot takes. 
by the way, shipping later today is your uh, Provoke branded hot, the spiciest takes in fintechs, custom hot sauce. Um, but here's here's my hot take on this. I want to believe that if community, it was easier for community banks to merge, that the smaller institutions are going to survive. Except, and I've written about this, that regulation is actually just one of the speed bumps towards this. It really comes down to these smaller institutions. And I used to work in M&A back in the day when I was a strategy consultant. These synergies are really hard to come by, and it's getting worse because these smaller institutions have massive technical debt. I no longer need your branch footprint. So this idea of I'm going to save money because I can close one of the two branches in town and you give the same level of service with you know half the cost. I got to do something with the real estate, right? And it's not like I used to be able to solve it. Third is if I'm just buying something that are my existing products and services, which I want to you know come back to, right? Like, does that actually benefit me? Because I still actually have to you know port you onto my system, and then it's you know kind of the I probably lost a lot of people along the way. I've never done a core conversion where at the end of it goes like, wow, I magically gained ten percent of customers. No, I probably lost ten percent of customers somewhere along the way or the activity. And the last is. I don't want your people because your people are the ones that produce this ex- exact same thing and products and services. I need, if I'm acquiring something, I need to be more like a tech company that's doing an aqua hire that is actually bringing me new talent that can do new things, right? And so that leads me into where you were going, Key, is the new products and services and the overlap of product set, right? Acquiring another small institution that looks and acts just like me worked in a world that you could try and rationalize expenses, but I don't. I fundamentally don't believe that to be true. Well, both things can can be true, right? You might be able to spread expenses out on a bigger base, but that doesn't give you any um, strategic lift, right? But I would would argue, though, that the cost of reducing those expenses is probably not... this is what I learned in M&A. It always takes longer and is more expensive than you expected. Right. And we've also talked about, you know, the two ways to get operating leverage. You can cut expenses or grow revenue and the growing Mm -hmm. revenue part doesn't necessarily get any easier because you've acquired another bank just like you and now you're double the size. Um, But you bring up another angle I I, want to explore a little bit. And so where we started was the tension between um, your regulatory approach and and what banks you know want and or need, um, but even within the banks, then we have buyers and we have sellers. So let's talk a little bit about you know what are buyers looking for? What what causes somebody to want to buy a bank? We just talked about one thing there. Um, why are people wanting to sell? And what are some of the tensions that come between buyers and sellers? And particularly now compared to say ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, well, I think, um, you know, if <laughs> I could talk broadly and historically, or I could talk about 2021 M&A. Oh. 2021 M&A was down almost 40%, or sorry, 2022, I, the year has changed, we are in a new year. 2022 M&A uh, was down 40% compared to 2021. Um, and it was the pace of deals in 2022 is about half of the pace of deals in 2019. That is from a Piper Sandler report looking at um, 2023. So 2022 was a very weird year for MA. I think broadly, um, you know, 
buyers want to buy good banks for sell. And there's a real tension because the good banks don't, don't necessarily want to sell or they need to sell for a really compelling and specific reason. And so there is a tension between um, who wants to be bought and sold, you know, who, who wants a buyer, um, and then who wants to buy that bank. And I I think Jason talked a lot about the relative attractiveness of some of um, of some of the banks, right? That a lot of banks are dealing with legacy footprints, legacy technology, legacy people, and that while that might be fine from a growth perspective, given their this bank's potentially long history and um, existing cost base, it's maybe not going to be attractive at the premium or price a, a seller or a, a buyer wants to pay. Um, you know, and I think buyers are getting really specific about what they want from deals. To Jason's point, it's there's just a lot of cost in M&A and um, you know, analysts and investors don't like um projected revenue or synergies. They they don't they completely discount that from yep. the um you know, from the buy from the purchase price, uh, from the premium that's paid for the deal. And so in M&A, it's really, really about cutting costs and 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 controlling co- controlling the things that you can control and hoping that like you get some unexpected revenue synergies and you get all of this within a reasonable time frame, hopefully within five years. I think right now buyers want deposits and they want growth, but sometimes I would guess things like what core do you use comes up probably more than it should in a um, in a conversation with potential um, sellers. I think you know it's hard because it's like what am, what are you actually buying? Are you buying good customers? Are you buying good loans? Are you buying good technology? Are you buying data? Right now in 2023, we both have the issue with the unrealized losses in the bond book that a buyer and seller are going to have to price in. And then we also have um, all banks are under CECL, which means that there's going to be the CECL double count that happens when you record a deal. And these are accounting um, metrics or uh, like things, they just shouldn't drive a deal, but they come in the price and people really have emotional reactions to the price. So I think M&A is there's this yeah. disconnect, right? At what buyers think they should be paying given all of these impediments that historically have not been so significant and sellers, you know, still look back and go, oh no, 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 no. Like, look at how, you know, good of a bank I am. I'm, I'm a well-run bank. And even a well-run bank isn't necessarily attractive. And I'd say a huge portion of this, like, you know, building off your comment, they want deposits, and they want growth. So they just don't want deposits. They want deposits that you're not paying a lot for that muffler, right? So non-rate-based deposits. And really is, you know, Ron Shevlin's written in the um, his snark tank about the, you know, deposits are becoming the Roach Motel, where you know, your deposits check in and they check out just as fast and they're being sprinkled across lots of other places. Um, if you're going to actually compete and become attractive, you need something that's differentiated. Being a well-run bank is not actually making you an attractive target. Having some lever that you have deposits that you can scale and you're not competing on rate, that makes you attractive. Having a new set of products that others, you know, don't, and, you know, that's going to open up new opportunities. Again, a merger of same-same isn't going to work. Whose expectations are most unrealistic right now, buyers or sellers? 
Oh, that's so hard because we have so so little data to go on. Um, I think so. Sellers always, you know, in bank director, and I'm. You should have told me you're going to ask this question because I could have looked up the answer. But we actually do ask sellers kind of what they would want to receive for their bank. Um, and I, you know, if I had to guess, um, if it's over 120 percent um, price to tangible book, most buyers can't pay that because of where bank valuations are. Um, and so. I, I think, you know, I think sellers probably always want to get a premium. They they probably think that, you know, again, I, I think there's, I think it's really good that there's a lot of well-run banks. Like, I think that's great. But I, I also can see that that's maybe not as um, compelling of an offering when a bank is for sale. Um, yep. And so that's, it, I do agree with Jason, there's got to be something else. And so kind of communicating that with sellers. Um, I think a buyer knows what they want and they, you know, a buyer is probably looking for something they can't do themselves in the time that, you know, in, in a certain time frame. So I guess I would, you know, not, nothing about against buyers and sellers. I love MA. I, you know, I came up doing deal math and being a real nerd about that as well. But um I, I do always think sellers are probably the ones that have have the biggest um conversation about what's realistic and, yeah. and what they can get. Well, in compounding that, right? So Key and I will agree on this one, so not so spicy, but compounding the problem is given the number of banks that we have that like say there's a large number of well-run banks, but they're a diminishing asset because their customers are aging, there's more competition entering the market. I don't know anyone who's banker that I talk to right now that goes, yo, we're crushing our deposit growth, right? Without, you know, competing on rate, right? So Diminishing asset that is compounded with the number of bankers that look at this and they go, I don't know who the next generation is that's going to lead this bank, especially family-owned banks. So I'm going to go sell. So when you look at the amount of inventory of well-run to pretty well-run banks in the market that all think they're worth a premium and the buyers are like, well, one, we have a disconnect on price, but two, I'm just going to keep shopping because there's plenty of banks and more coming, you know, onto the market. Yeah, I, I still hear a lot of bankers that have the, you know, 15 year ago high water mark. It's still in their yeah. head, right? Yeah. The, that they they think, well, you know, those days look that's normal, and so there'll be yeah. a, a return to normal. Oh, it has been really interesting to see the change in valuation. The other thing, and we didn't talk about this because it's so specific, but um, there were a, like a handful of mergers of equals, and that really changes the valuation averages of banks. If you have a no premium deal, and then it kind of weights down all the one hundred and fifty percent premium deals. But and, and that's specific, and I, you know, I don't necessarily need, we don't necessarily need to get into that. But that sounds like it might be probably an option that more banks should consider, especially more on the smaller side, uh, under under a billion dollars, because you can just gain scale so rapidly. And then maybe you can get enough scale that you become attractive to a bigger buyer. But those same challenges still apply, right? Okay. The, yeah, the completely. Just gaining scale doesn't get you there. So, yeah. so Jason, I want to ask you this, if, um, and, and Kia, you can weigh in as well, but if you're a non or an asymmetric competitor, you're a fintech, you're a, not a normally regulated financial institution, is all of this mess good news or bad news for you? Oh, great question. Um, I think a lot of it is bad news. Right, because there's a lot of fintechs that want to go buy banks to have the charter because they've realized 
you know, for fintechs, you know, the, there's two business models. I think I've figured out a better mousetrap when it comes to lending, except we're entering a cycle right now where it turns out, you know, AI and machine learning to create a new alternative underwriting, you know, it, that's going to be tested. And I'm going to be the naysayer on that and say, no, you just found out, you know, this is an Alex Johnson one that, you know, lending the money out isn't the hard part, getting paid back is. And the other is, are the fintechs that are focused on is payment vehicles, right? That are interchange dependent. Well, the cost of running those programs is doing nothing but going up. And so the realization for a lot of these well-funded fintechs is if I just go buy a bank, I actually can fix my business model problem. And, but now you're getting into, you know, something that's just an incomplete disarray. Um, so I think that makes it a challenge, right? Because buying a bank is necessary to fix your business model problem for the well-funded startup um, because they never had a business model in the first place, but they're unable to do it. Over the last couple of years, we've seen banks buying fintechs and fintechs buying banks. Do we see more of that or less of that going forward? Kia, what's your bet? <laughs> um, I think we've had a change in regulatory interest in approving these deals. Um, I think there's going to be heightened regulatory scrutiny. Um, I, you know, this probably isn't the conversation, but the um, the backgrounds of the buyers, I think, need, are probably going to become, especially if you're a non-bank buyer, uh, are going to become really, really important. We do have some um, investor groups that have been able to buy banks that aren't. Um, straight up fintechs, but, and, and do you probably, do you want to use more fintechs to deliver their banking services without necessarily being a fintech or banking as a service bank? Um, but I think, I mean, I don't know if I think more charters are for sale or versus more deals getting approved. Those are two different questions. Maybe there are more charters for sale. Maybe more banks would consider this, um, especially if they realize their, um, smallness is an advantage to these buyers. Um, but they, I don't know if I think regulators are going to be hot on these um, applications. Well, and the question becomes valuation then, right? Because the for a relatively well-run bank, the fintech that has a lot of money is willing to pay a higher price because that charter is you know more valuable, and they they have cash, right? The, those who don't have a business model but raise too much money in the hype years need to need to fix something before they run out of cash, right? The boat is sinking. How do I patch it? And, you know, bailing, you know, with the tin cup isn't going to do it. Buying a charter is, you know, more extreme. Let's take the boat in to dry dock and try and fix it. Um, but the, the challenge is going to be when you look at, they have the cash, but they're not actually interested in the existing business. So with my M&A hat on, I look at it and say like, well, tangible book. I'm a fintech. I don't know what that is. You know, like I'm, I want to talk about, you know, SaaS multiples, even though I really don't have a SaaS business, I'm really a, a finance business, but I'm trying to sell myself as a SaaS. You know, how do I think about your business and what you're worth? And and how do we think about the international market? Um, you know, part of that, um, you know, increased regulatory scrutiny includes looking at foreign ownership. We've seen over the last couple of years, some of the large um, foreign banks that bought U.S. bank-based uh, banks have um, spun those off. Um, do we see ourselves getting, you know, more isolated or more connected to the global finance economy? 
Oh, I mean, forget even going global, JP, throw in the complexity when you have venture capital investors. I was doing diligence in, well, I won't name the year because you can start to work backwards what deal it is, but it was one of the first neobanks that was becoming uh, on its way to becoming a unicorn. This was the Series A, first real institutional money. And it was explaining to the VC that they were going to need to um, you know, share a lot of their ownership details, including some financial information right, related to this. And they freaked out and they're like, we're a fund. We don't do that with any other of our portfolio companies. It's like, welcome to investing in regulated things. It's going to happen. Yeah, I think um, it's hard to extrapolate based on the international activity because we've seen um, really large international players. So TD bought First Horizon. That deal is in limbo. Um, it is, I, be- I believe it is still pending. Uh, and But we've also seen, um, I think, is it Union, um, Mitsubishi, MUFG um, sell their U.S. arm to U.S. Bank. Right. And I think, was there a Bank BMO of the West, deal? Uh, yeah, was, Bank of the West. Uh, sold um, off by BMW And I Grandma. would... I would wonder if the um, the CCAR requirements and the living will requirements and the international or the um, need to have an intermediary holding company probably are mm. playing a little bit more for those guys versus like what you're I think you were asking, which is an international firm buying a smaller bank. I just do think that regulators, especially after um, that bank in Washington, was it Moonstone Bank? After it was discovered right. that there were questions around some of the ownership and just even like the review of the ownership itself. Um, it is a lot of work to buy a bank. I, <laughs> I, You can go look up a court case where I got sued for writing articles about someone who was buying a bank and um, how regulators should approach that. Um, you know, like just if you've got, um, in my case, if you have a violation, if, you've, if another regulator has taken action against you, a non-bank regulator has taken action against you and then you own a trust and then you try to buy a bank, do you get to buy the bank? Um, so those are, you know, these are like questions that I think regulators are going to be very interested in is who wants to own these banks for re- what reason? And are you going to change the business model? And that came up also in my reporting with about DeNovo's that if you plan to change a bank's model a lot, um, that's a, that gets a closer review um, in the proposal than if you would just like build a bank yourself. Yeah, I mean, I just bring it up because increasingly the you know, financial world is smaller and smaller, and the biggest advances are coming, you know, in you know Asia and Africa and South America and emerging markets. And so we talk a lot on the show about you know the U.S. versus the rest of the world, even though it's not. <laughs> you know, quite just a simple dichotomy. But um, but I think my sense of it is we tend to get, at least in the regulated bank space, um, a little bit more insular um, with the way that we're going here. But having said that, um, you cited in your article, Kia, that acting comptroller of the currency, Michael Sue, um, does support kind of looking at new ways of uh, analyzing bank mergers. And um, he talks about, you know, so bad mergers are prevented, good mergers are allowed. Well, can we start with what is a bad merger and what's a good merger? I think I think we understand from buyers and sellers standpoint, what, what do the regulators think is a good or a bad merger? 
Well, I've written uh, or I've observed, and I know Alex Johnson has written about this, that um, Comptroller Sue talks a lot about his experience uh, leading up to the financial crisis. And if you're looking for some bad mergers, uh, maybe go back to like maybe 2004 to about 2007 and look at some of the prices look at some of the um, institutions that were sold. Um, I think Bank of America still might be paying for some of Countrywide's um, shenanigans. Uh, you know, Bear Stearns, um, JP Morgan, I know, is paying fines on that for a while, although they got a pretty good deal. Um, and and I, I think, I think like, it's not, this is not spicy at all to say, like, the Countrywide was probably a bad merger on a couple of fronts. They were, the way that they were growing was not going to be good long term um they pay, it was there's was too much money there was a lot of legal liability and i think that is a bad merger it's hard though because i don't know what the role of the regulator should have been to discourage bank of america from buying countrywide i think if i was the fdic isn't it better that that bank of america takes on that legal liability rather than than fdic having to find a buyer needing to do a loss share when countrywide fails so i do think there is actually like a pretty big open question of what is a good merger what is a bad merger what does smart mergers look like i don't think we've seen a lot of quote unquote bad mergers we've seen maybe some bad integrations um but i think you know most deal like most banks i think are very cautious about buying the legal liability of their sellers um and they you know they don't want a deal that becomes like a thorn in their side do you guys have any thoughts on bad mergers have you seen any bad mergers recently well i mean again historical bad mergers right like it's easy to find the roadmap and say oh yeah we shouldn't have done that you know like you like to your earlier point, we didn't price in bond losses or we didn't think about uh, loan loss reserves because of, a you know, they, they've been growing and their book looks great. We didn't bake in that we're facing a possible recession or at least, you know, a slowdown in the economy. What does that look like? Or concentration rests. Those are the easier ones. I think the hard thing in finding out what is a good merger as opposed to the bad merger is the landscape's changed, right? Like historically, what was a good merger was two well-run banks coming together, increasing their footprint, not too much branch overlaps. So we're not, you know, um, closing a ton of branches, you know, not too much concentration. Those were historically good things. And I don't think that's the right yardstick anymore. I will also say we've seen you know, from a good, bad merger regulatory perspective, we have seen at least one deal where regulators extracted um, like a, a concession around branching, I believe, a low to moderate income community. Um, I wonder if one of the concerns from a regulatory perspective that is a little bit more outdated is that when um, banks integrate and close branches that they create banking deserts and people lose access to products and services. Now, to Jason's point, the way that products and services are getting delivered is changing. So it's not necessarily a one-for-one -one to say that when a branch closes, a um, community loses access to banking. But it certainly does maybe matter from kind of an investment perspective of just where a bank is willing to spend money um, to be in the presence of. And we've seen, you know, I, but I wonder too if they're if the merger framework needs to be a little bit more mindful about where do you plan to close branches? How does that impact maybe a CRA rating? How are you planning on staying present in that community? Um, does your, you know, would your um, 
maybe the ethnicity or the income level of your um, customer demographic change um, relative to where you have branches. And maybe that should be included in the framework. But again, that still doesn't capture that non-bank competition that that um, banks respond to in trying to grow um, and compete. Yeah. Well, hot take here. If the government is so worried about these banking deserts that are being created, one of two choices, invest in digital infrastructure for the people who are there. And let's talk about physical money needs to go away and let's make it digital and the government needs to work on that. And I think part of being digital is we need to fix identity nationally, like physically having to go in and present documentation to someone is stupid. Um, Like if the government wants to avoid the deserts, go get people more digital. If you don't want to do that, go build a nationalized version of the, you know, um, low end banking account, you know, turn the post office. Yeah. I was going to say, it's just now a conversation about postal banking. Do one of the other things. You've got physical assets, go bring a new service to them. If it's important to you, or get off your butt and make it so everyone can be digital because right now, you know, we're seeing a big divide between a lot of these lower income and rural areas where they don't have access to, you know, high speed internet and to low cost services, you know, that allow them to be digital. Well, and, and the other thing is uh, look at the concentration that we've had uh, over the past several years and the systemic risk, the too big to fail. Um, we we have less than 5,000 banks uh, today, you know, over 13,000 when I started in the industry, but balances are higher than ever, right? They're concentrated in a smaller number of institutions. I know this is, a, this is an audio medium, but I actually, in the same issue, wrote about how there are fewer banks, but there are more banks over 50 billion. And it is actually really interesting to think about, um, you know, I think as a reporter, the hollowing out of the bank space. So when the $10 billion, when Dodd-Frank got uh, passed, it created this $10 billion asset threshold that necessitated scale to go over $10 billion. You saw a hollowing out of buyers in the 5 to $8 billion because they got really big, really fast. And then we have not seen as many banks come from the one to three into the five to eight. We just don't have those buyers. And so, um, you know, if if we ever do this like retrospective on Dodd Frank, um, I would be actually really interested to see how it changed the mid, um, like the ten billion dollar and under space, and how it how institutions moved through those asset ranges because it really did impact. You know, going back to the whole point of this conversation, it impacted who the buyers were for the one billion dollars and under. Um, well, just, back to the difficulty of M&A, right? Like, I would love to see that analysis. I'm hoping you pick it up, Kia, or, you know, we'll have to... I, you know, up. I don't... Not too many people are asking me to write about, you know, 10 years after Dodd-Frank, <laughs> what's, what the landscape <laughs> looks like. But what it, what I, I'm really like. interested. I think it's one of the most unintended consequences of Dodd-Frank. There's been a lot of them, but that was one of them. I completely agree. And let's think back to what we talked about in terms of the pressure on, you know, why the end of the MA superhighway, right? Is you know, there's the four impediments we talked about, there's the price discrepancy between what buyers and sellers want. So what's the bank of the future going to look like if you look across those asset classes? And I think what we're going to end up with is, you know, you've got a few that are in the league of their own, right? So call it the JP Morgan's B of A's that are large international right? Like they, they happen to do a lot of, you know, retail and 
you know, business banking in the U.S. The multi-trillion asset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the multi-trillion asset, right? Like, let's put those aside. But now we're talking about, let's get down to like the super regional, regional, you know, just, you know, a you know, good size bank, 20 billion. And then you've got some on the small side. I would actually hate to be kind of in the middle right now because I don't think you have enough resources to compete with what I think we're going to see is this will partially be the B of A's and the wells of the world in addition to their international businesses. But you're going to have, you know, call it the capital ones and others that like they are now your Costco, you know, Sam's Club, Target, right? Like they're big enough that they have scale Mm -hmm. that they can choose how to compete with their massive resources. Yeah. Flip to the bottom side. I think they need to figure out how do I differentiate, right? And I can do that one or two ways. I either need to concentrate on a set of customers and solve a problem no one else is, or I get big into banking as a service and embedded uh, fintech and embedded finance, right? Like I just give up that I'm not going to be the customer facing brand, but I'm going to take my access to the rails and to you know my regulatory prowess. And I'm just going to be a provider of pipes to others. I don't know. What do you think of that, Kia? I mean, I think that I think you've actually actively or accurately um, characterized like the nature of competition. Um, And if I'm a bank working in an individual marketplace, I probably need to spend a lot more time figuring out who am I competing against and how and how are they competing against me? And being like, how am I going to respond? Um, and what are the avenues of growth that are available to me? And I, you know, I, and at what point do I need to sell? And if I sell, how will I be attractive to that? But um, I, I do think like technology has really, really changed banking and has really changed competition and it's coming up in M and a, but it's also coming up in like, you know, this banking as a service, right? Like when we talk about you know, these smaller banks, the bank as a service banks may never want to do a deal any again, and they will grow through a different way in part because they have, um, you know, an effective asset cap. Um, and so I, I do think that for us, for smaller community banks, their, their calculus is getting a lot more complicated. Well, this might be a stretch, but it gives me an excuse to talk to you about soccer again. And we haven't talked since the World Cup, but you um, are a referee in soccer. What what are the parallels that you see being a regulator on the field uh, and, and, you know, maybe even what kind of, um, you know, advice or direction do you, you think we need to give to the players on each side? Yeah. So I just want to, uh, maybe I should always start out my podcast by saying this, but I just want to have a disclaimer that uh, what I'm about to say is just my personal experience and does not represent any of the assigners or referees that I work in. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm an independent contractor. So if you want to talk about what it's like to be an independent contractor with payments and managing your personal finances, that is a different conversation, but I have thoughts. Um, So as far as being a regulator, I've I don't know very much. Like I know basically like what everyone I feel like on the outside knows about regulation, but I think about myself as an examiner almost on field and that I have to, um, I do not make the rules. Um, I was not consulted about my opinions on the rules in many cases, but I'm responsible for knowing the rules and enforcing the rules and sometimes having to communicate, you know, uh, to players and coaches. I know that that's the rule in your heart but that's not actually the law of the game. And so, um, and that, 
the par- some of the parallels that I see are you know, kind of that management. Um, I also see some parallels with reporting, but this idea that like I create an environment on a field where there's a little bit of antagonism, but there also has to be some cooperation, right? Everyone's trying to get through this game. Everyone wants to have a good game. Everyone wants to feel that the game was fair, um, that when I enforce rules against a player or when I call a violation or a foul or whatever misconduct, that I would do it to anyone else on the field. Um, and so I, I spend a lot of time actually trying to build credibility um, on the field before, after, during, and after the game. And that comes off in like my work rate. It comes off in how I address players. It comes out often how I communicate and adjudicate calls, right? Because like I'm just running around on the field and pointing at stuff and being like, that was illegal. That was fine. Uh, you know, like you can only do that in this situation, but you couldn't do it in a different situation. Um, and then having a lot of teamwork and building a lot of trust with, you know, people that maybe I know well, maybe I don't know well, but I'm kind of trying to create a consistent um, experience for everyone. So, but I also like, you know, JP, we've talked about soccer, you know, I feel like um, you know, people want, the other thing I, I want to, um, you know, kind of promote if I have the time is that, if you looked at the World Cup referees and were like, I could do that and I could do it better. <laughs> well, sign up for a class, get certified. If you're in Tennessee, I might even train you to, to call. And um, if you are at a game, if you're at any game, don't yell at the referees. It's not cool, especially if they look like they're under 18. Don't yell at them. Um, we're losing referees really quickly and, you know, they can never get better. And we can't serve the game if if they're getting abused by spectators. Well, and just like regulators, it, it always looks easier from the sideline. Um, oh, yeah. And you would do it differently or like, you yeah. know, th- there's always a mitigating thing. And it's just like, man, I got to make this call and I got to move on with the rest of the game. Well, although I do hereby declare that uh, matters requiring attention are now called yellow cards by the regulators <laughs> and cease and desist is so a red sorry. card. Yeah. Prompt connect- corrective action. Those are ejections or like their suspensions after the game. Well, I think you make a really important point if we apply this to regulators is historically in order to ensure uniformity in the application of regulation and guidance is really all about centralized command and control, right? Like this brings us right back to where we started at the top of the hour on, hey, you know, we've got these consistent set of you know ways of measuring like HHI, et cetera, but it doesn't tell the real story. What we actually need to do is push out a better application and judgment at the edge to understand the nuance because the world is evolving faster than regulation. And historically, the slow evolution meant regulation could catch up. Um, you know, Ron had tweeted about this earlier in the week that you know, you know, innovation always outpaces regulation kind of by definition. Um, We have to embrace that, right? Rather than saying, well, the problem is, you know, innovation, you know, is moving too fast, therefore don't need regulation. No, 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 we need regulation. We just need faster moving regulation. I don't know, man. There's been some changes in offside and they came up in the World Cup. And I don't know if everyone appreciated those changes, (laughs) like, or, I mean, you know, like, to make a parallel of how VAR (laughs) was used in the World Cup. Like maybe sometimes people were not happy with these blade of grass, the preciseness of some of the decisions. They just didn't feel um, correct to the viewers, even though they were definitively correct um, on the VAR. So there is funny because um, also rulemaking just takes a really long time. It's really deliberative. And then um, 
man, you do not want to be the referee on the first game of the season after a rule change has gone into effect uh, because you have to explain to everyone who maybe didn't read, you know, they're not keeping up with IFAB and all the rule changes. Actually, we're doing it differently now. And there was an arbitrary change in the season. And now it's a new soccer. They're on a fiscal year. So like the fiscal year, right? The first game after July um, one is the game where all of the new rules get into effect. And it's very confusing to be the examiner on the field being like, actually, you didn't know about this. And I know you guys innovated and we responded and now we've got a new um, like a new framework that we're using. Yeah, well, but this also becomes the problem and realizing we need to bring this to a close is how do you push that decision making to the edge? Do it in a way that you're keeping up, and not taking off the constituents to your right. you know, point about rulemaking. But third, also, and we're seeing a lot of this right now. And this will, I think, maybe the next uh, hot wings and hot takes Kia for you and I. And this might be a Dara Tarkowski uh, uh, kind of call. But you're seeing a lot of application of regulation right now where banks are getting different answers depending on which regulator they talk to, even if it's within the, or I should say within the, which examiner, even within the same regulatory body, we're finding there's this inconsistency in the application of uh, regulation and guidance. Oh, I completely agree with that. And, you know, that is, that's also a, like, it's not banks fault and it's hard because it's like their it's their problem um i don't know if examiners feel anguish when they're like another agency or another examiner has has given that information and i think you know that's just uh that is i don't know if we're ever going to get that solved but we do have we do have some interagency guidance coming out around third-party vendors and around crypto i don't know if banks really love the direction that all the regulators went but there is certainly some uniformity coming there so um and then jason i'm really excited about you your um hot sauce empire that you're building um the you know this like logistics uh firm that you're running from your living room with your palette of hot sauces well you know it was a little bit hilarious over the holidays. I would say close to 50% of the gifts I received were hot sauce oh, related. Oh, no. Yeah, you're the hot sauce oh, guy yeah. now. Um, but yeah, uh, 17 packages going out today, lining up some fantastic guests. And I, I've got the full range, as people can see behind me. We have OCC Chipotle. <laughs> we have the KYC Oh No Garlic Habanero. And then my personal favorite, my bank partner ghosted me, Ghost Pepper. Oh, that's incredible. That is incredible. Yes. You'll, you, well, you're crying, but we don't know why. Oh, yes. Well, and I will ship the my bank partner ghosted me to any fintech CEO who needs it because it will just add to their tears. <laughs> Well, I would love to send this into added extra time, but I'm afraid I must blow the final <laughs> whistle. Um, the one thing I learned is that I don't want to be a referee or a regulator, um, as frustrating as it is. If to I can do it, anyone can do it. Yeah, that's. I want that to be today's takeaway. If, you know. <laughs> 
Well, Kia, as always, thanks for joining us. You can read her article, Competitive Concerns Complicate M&A, in the latest edition of Bank Director. And we'll see both of you at Bank Director's Acquire or Be Acquired conference uh, at the end of the month at the JW Marriott Phoenix Ridge Resort in Phoenix. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners will be there, and Jason, you'll be there as well. So um, we'll leave it there, and um, we'll, we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.